This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rand Vice President and Director of Rand Health, Jeffrey Wasserman. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to RAND. It's nice looking out to see some familiar faces uh, along with some new ones. For those of you, and I know there are some of you here who are new to RAND, I'll just uh, take a moment and describe what we do. We uh, just celebrated our 70th anniversary, and our mission is to improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. And we seek to create a world that is safer, more secure, healthier, and prosperous. We're nonprofit, we're nonpartisan. We typically approach projects with a multidisciplinary team of researchers, and we tackle virtually every issue I think we could all think about under the sun domestically, uh, national security related, and so on. So we've assembled a terrific panel uh, for tonight's uh, program. And two of the people on the panel I've known for a long time, Ian and Patricia, whom you'll meet in a minute. And I've talked a lot about their work uh, over the years, and frankly, I've been very confused about the differences between complementary and alternative medicine and integrative health and so on. And I uh, hope that tonight they'll shed some light on those differences and uh, a lot of other terminology. But there's one thing that I did learn from them, and that is that roughly a third of the population uses some form of care, treatment modality, what have you, that's outside of what we would consider conventional care. So that's a third of the people who spend roughly $30 billion a year out of pocket, not covered by insurance. So we have a lot of people spending a lot of money. And I think it's very important that we, in a RAND-type place that focuses on evidence-based analysis and research and recommendations that come from that, uh, that we fit, help figure out what works for what? And why, as the title uh, suggests here of tonight's program, we're moving uh, from a situation where this type of care was considered marginal to mainstream. And I think that's, uh, I, I'm sure the panelists have a lot of insight in that regard. So now I'll turn the panel over to Patricia Herman, who is our moderator. Uh, Patricia is a senior behavioral scientist at RAND, as well as a licensed naturopathic doctor, double threat. <laughs> so, Patricia? Well, welcome. This idea of integrative health has been around for a long time and under a variety of different um, labels, as, as uh, Jeffrey mentioned. Um, and some of these therapies have been around for hundreds of years, and some of them even thousands of years. So why are we talking about them tonight? We're talking about them tonight because in the last, I don't know if you know, in the last year or so, there have been two big developments, two big policy developments that are really pushing this whole kind concept of integrative health into a mainstream situation. The first one is the clinical practice guidelines. The VA, the DOD, and the American College of Physicians have all now written guidelines for chronic pain that list this list of 10, 12 different kinds of therapies, non-drug therapies that they are saying are first-line treatments for chronic pain. And on that list are things like yoga, mindfulness-based stress reduction, acupuncture, spinal manipulation, tai chi. 
And doctors are going to have to figure out how to prescribe these and how to make them available to their patients. And then the second big change is that a number of the groups surrounding the health insurance industry are now recommending and figuring out how to cover these therapies. So all of a sudden, there's, a, there's this push toward integration, but it's not going to be without challenges. So luckily, we have this wonderful panel of experts here. Um, I'm going to briefly introduce each of them, and you've got more details on them in your program there. Um, but let's let's go down the line here. So here to my left, I have Dr. Shaista Malik. She's a cardiologist, uh, an associate vice, Chance, vice chancellor of integrative health, executive director of the Susan Samueli Integrative Health Institute, and the Susan Samueli Endowed Chair of Integrative Medicine at the University of California, Irvine. And she's going to be bringing the perspective tonight of someone who's actually running an integrative health clinic. Okay. Next to her is Dr. John Scringe. He's a chiropractic doctor and the president of the Southern California University of Health Sciences, where, and where he is now training a lot of these practitioners who are offering the integrative health therapies. He's going to be presenting their perspective tonight. Next to him is Dr. Wayne Jonas. Uh, Dr. Jonas is a practicing family physician, executive director of the Samuel Integrative Health Programs, and the author of a recently published book called How Healing Works. And uh, Dr. Jonas is going to represent the perspective of the healthcare system of, as a whole and how it relates to integrative health. And at the end down there is Dr. Ian Coulter, who's a senior uh, policy researcher at RAND, where he holds the RAND Samueli Chair for Integrative Medicine, and he's going to be presenting the perspective of research and what can, it can do for integrative health. And so I'm going to um, ask uh, each of the, uh, the panelists a couple of different questions, and we're going to try to keep their answers really short. I've asked them to keep them down to like two minutes or less so that we have time for you to ask questions, okay? So let's start here with Dr. Malik. Um, so our first question is, basically, from your point of view, um, as somebody who's running an integrative health clinic, what is integrative health and what are the challenges you face? So thank you, first of all, Patricia, Ian, and Jeffrey, for the invitation to speak here. Um, you know, part of this is like coming home. I did a lot of my um, research methodology work at RAND when I was a PhD student, so it's really wonderful to be on a panel here. So in terms of integrative health, uh, UC Irvine has uh, one of the centers, or one of 70 centers across the nation in an academic institution, and that number has grown. It's almost doubled in the last seven years, from 30 to 70 now. And what uh, is interesting about integrative health at most academic institutions is that they're silos. So they usually operate in parallel to the rest of the medical or health system uh, in a university. Um, and the reason for that is because uh, clinical care that's delivered in integrative health, and you heard some of that from Patricia, whether it be nutrition visits, um, chiropractic visits, acupuncture, um, are not covered by insurance. So a lot of times these centers exist as cash models. And that's where we were about three years ago. 70% of our clinical visits were cash. And that limits how big they get. And so we decided to retrofit uh, what we do into a fee-for-service model where we would get patients. And now um, in the last 
uh, year, we've now flipped that ratio, and 80% of our visits are covered by insurance. And we've done that using um, a strategy where we do shared visits, we do group visits, and we've uh, become very creative about having uh, groups of practitioners practice together. It's a team care model, um, and the visits get covered for the patient, and they get to see um, a physician who does like a primary care consult, but they'll um, look at the diagnosis from a holistic viewpoint. So we've gone from a silo model, and with the Samueli gift, really part of the mission and vision of the gift is to integrate this type of care into the system. And at UCI, we have very supportive leadership where we're bringing this model now into the hospital and bringing it to every clinic at UCI. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Dr. Scringe, the same question from the point of view of uh, teaching these practitioners, what is integrative health and what are the challenges you face? Sure. Um, we look at, at our institution, integrative health, as uh, several parts. Uh, whole person care, so we want to look at the whole person. Uh, we look at evidence-informed. We also think it includes the uh, relationship and partnership between the patient and the practitioner, mm -hmm. as well as using all um, uh, information and modalities and practitioners in a coordinated and integrated fashion. So it is team-based care. Um, so it's a team sports, I guess. Um, one of the, I think, challenges that I think we can look at for overall the uh, complementary and alternative medicine uh, coin practitioners would be probably looking at us and viewing us more as a modality, whether it's just like acupuncture or manipulation or nutrition, rather than the full scope of uh, our license and, and practice and, mm -hmm. and also education. So I think that's a, a, a key challenge because then from there, what we see is uh, policy, whether it's insurance policy, whether it's state uh, license policies, where you start looking at modalities and, and only reimbursing you for maybe the treatment, mm -hmm. the manipulation, the acupuncture needles, and not the full scope of maybe the exam uh, and management codes and things mm -hmm. like that. So I think that's some of the biggest yeah. challenges that we see. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, Dr. Jonas. What, um, so thank you. Um, thank you for having me, and thank you, Rand, for putting this together again, Ian. Uh, I think a couple years ago uh, we had a session like this, and it was very well received. And, and Jeff, thanks for allowing it to occur again. Um, so um, I'm going to give a sort of a, a, a one minute on the definition and one minute on the challenges. And about every 150 years, uh, things arise outside of mainstream healthcare practice uh, that are not mainstream. Um, 150 years ago, it happened, and now it's happening again. And uh, Ian and I have been in this uh, area long enough so that we've seen the change in terminology as it attempts to get into the mainstream. Usually the reason that happens is because the mainstream is ignoring something very important. And that's what's happening today, and it's the reason there's so much popularity for that. So first it was called quackery, and then it was called unconventional medicine, and then I ran the Office of Alternative Medicine mm -hmm. and helped to create a center for complementary and alternative medicine. Uh, and now it's called uh, the uh, Center for Integrative Health. And I use the definition of integrative health uh, to include uh, the area that 
almost all the professions, whether you call them complementary or conventional, are ignoring, and that is self-care. Uh, that 80% of health actually arises out of what people do outside of the professional visit. It goes in their life, it's about their behavior, and it's about the social determinants, so the personal determinants mm -hmm. of health. And the biggest challenge that the entire field of professional health care, whatever you call it, is, is actually incorporating the self-care into the delivery system and get at that other 80%. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, we will get what we've got, which is a $2.8 trillion system, as the CDC reported again uh, about two days ago, declining, more, uh, declining life expectancy for the the last uh, two years in a row, and dropping in terms of quality and quality outcomes compared to other countries. Uh, and so if we don't address that challenge as a whole, uh, mm -hmm. then it won't matter what the definition is. So the integrative health is the combination of three things, conventional medicine as it's currently being practiced, complementary practices uh, as you that you teach, and self-care. And it's all should be directed towards uh, producing self-care. Good, thank you. And uh, Dr. Coulter, uh, well, again, from the well, point well, of view of research. Welcome and thank you for coming. Um, first of all, I'd like to get across to you the wonderment of what actually has happened. And the only analogy I can give you is if the Israelis sat down with the Palestinians and agreed to joint uh, administration of, of Jerusalem, that's pretty much what's happened in healthcare. <laughs> you have to remember that these groups for 100 years battle each other. They didn't do it with guns, but that was about the only thing they didn't use. So it was very bitter, it was very fierce, and they were totally exclusive. So that you had, as Wayne said, two parallel systems, one of which was called quackery and one which was called mainstream. So it's amazing to see that this revolution's happened, and funny enough, most people are ignorant that it's even happened, right? But 15 years ago, the VA wouldn't let a chiropractor in their door, and now they're throughout the institution. So that's an amazing thing for a sociologist like me. So the challenges are, are, are quite fierce. You've heard uh, the, the economic challenges, of course, both in terms of uh, uh, billing codes and coverage, and, and we have to find a sustainable financial model. And so far, it's been heavily developed by philanthropists, including our chairs, which <laughs> two of us are sitting here having, and all of us have had the benefit of the Samuelis. Um, that's got to change. The second thing, though, is that whether we like it or not, this is the era of evidence-based practice. Mm -hmm. That means a lot of different things, but you have to have some kind of evidence. It may be that the financial uh, model needs that as well, to show that this is a cost-benefit sign of system, that you do get benefits from it, and convincing insurance companies to do that. And that's where RAND comes in. We have looked at this and we say, well, the research will be like the cure. It's got to be collaborative research. And unfortunately, at the moment, it's imbalanced. Medicine is very good at the research, and on the CAM side, they're falling behind. So they don't have the capacity, don't have the infrastructure. You can't do research in this field unless you do get access to chiropractic patients or naturopathic patients. You have to do that. They're not in the other institutions. So we have actually made a proposal here at RAND that what we would like to do is to help one of the partners, which is really the CAM part of the integrative healthcare, uh, develop their capacity to do research. So we think it's not that that'll do everything, but it's what we do. Yeah. Great. Great. Thank you. Um, and now I'd like to also um, ask every one of the panelists again, um, this time, would you talk about what do you see is the next step? What the most important next step for integrative health from your perspective? 
So one of those is just training the next generation of providers uh, to be open to and receptive to other modalities and uh, creating a curriculum that's transprofessional that um, goes through the basics of nutrition and how uh, lifestyle medicine can be incorporated into um, conventional medicine. Um, and you know, to do so, again, we're, we have the benefit of philanthropy, and uh, we just created in our School of Medicine a track uh, for medical students to get, and they, they get a scholarship for this. If they elect the track, they'll be trained in integrative medicine. But uh, wouldn't it be great if you know, that was just part of and parcel of the curriculum, and they get introduction and some exposure to it throughout the four years um, so they know you know when to add that on to whatever they're prescribing or treating um, the second part is I think we've talked about um, is just the reimbursement structure mm -hmm. and for that to change mm -hmm. for us to pay for prevention <clears throat> pay for wellness as a society you know is it a single payer system is it how do we do that in fee-for-service um, and then where are the studies the research maybe the comparative effectiveness to show that this can decrease cost improve outcomes improve patient satisfaction and going back to our own hospital you know our leadership we showed uh, using a research study in neurosurgery patients that when we used a whole a holistic approach with acupuncture with healing touch uh, guided imagery patients left the hospital had shorter uh, length of stays had, and had better satisfaction scores. And so that's now translated into our hospital funding a whole uh, inpatient integrative team. Wow, great. Good. Um, Dr. Scringe from... Next steps. Where, where do you go in two minutes? Um, <laughs> try to hit three topics. Maybe I'll get to... But I, I, I do think collaboration is, is a key at this point for next steps. We... We were primarily a chiropractic, acupuncture and Chinese medicine. We have Ayurveda, massage. And in order to really look at integrated team-based care, we, we have to bridge between the so-called holistic complementary and alternatives in medicine side with mainstream. And uh, we had challenges trying to reach out and getting those particular mainstreams to collaborate with us. So strategically what we did is we brought a physician's assistant program uh, under our umbrella. And just to give you an idea, we have a deep, deep core curriculum where the physician assistant say that first year over 70% of their classwork, coursework, they're sitting side by side with the doctor of chiropractic and the doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. So we feel that in order to um, train this team-based uh, healthcare team, we need to educate them in what is called as interprofessional education. So just to, to mention uh, one of the things that I also think we should go, and I didn't want to get into alternative payment methods uh, such as um, bundled payments or uh, shared risk, uh, that's a little bit different than fee-for-service, but I, I think another thing we can do is move other programs to the example of what the Department of Transportation did. And in the past, the Department of Transportation would give certain uh, uh, approvals for different practitioners to give physical exams for mm -hmm. truck drivers to get their uh, license. 
and they would every year look at, okay, maybe the chiropractor can do it this time or the nurse practitioner. And what they did was said, okay, these practitioners can now play in the game where what happens is they all have to take a standardized exam in that specialty. So it's not um, practitioner, it's practitioner neutral is what it is. And it's saying, okay, just because you have this base doesn't mean that you have the competencies to do so. And I can see that going into other areas, such as the integrated medicine type of certificate, nutrition, spine care, Etc. So, mm-hmm. Dr. Jonas, I think uh, I think if we don't rethink and redesign how we do uh, chronic care, it doesn't matter what else we do, <laughs> and it doesn't matter what we pay for, and we have to put the patient in the center, uh, and we have to align the economic drivers behind that so that. Uh, we're spending enough time to support the patient, listen to what matters to them, uh, and pay attention to what the science already shows us, which is that you have to pay attention to the whole person. The physical body, the behavior, uh, the social and emotional body, and the uh, spiritual and mental context in which they live. And we need a system that actually does that if we're truly going to address and and, uh, prevent and heal chronic disease. Uh, and so if we don't, I, think, I think that really needs to be the next step, and we need to put an economic engine behind that to make that happen. I, I had a, a patient uh, that came in after and uh, saw me the other day for an integrative health visit, and uh, she had had 10 years of chronic low back pain. Uh, for which they now recommend non-pharmacological approaches. And she'd had non-pharmacological approaches. She'd had chiropractic and she'd had acupuncture as as modalities and she'd had injections and and she was on medications. Uh, And we sat down with her and we asked her what really mattered in her life. And and what mattered in her life was getting back to some kind of a function. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, the biggest problem that I have is that... uh, um, my back pain prevents me from getting in my car, driving down five hours to see my grandkids and getting down mm. on the floor to play with them. Mm. I want to do that. So I said, okay, let's go up to the physical therapist and stop trying to treat your pain. Just see if we can get you up and down off the floor. She said, perfect. So the physical therapist worked with her for a period of about two months, just building her strength. It hurt her. It was painful but she was motivated because it mattered to her. (laughs) And in about three or four months, she she got in her car, she drove down, she got down on the floor, and she played with her grandkids. And, you know, after that, she kept doing it, Mm -hmm. and then her pain improved. We need a system that asks asks the patient what matters, uh, not just what's the matter, and then supports them in the ability to make that happen in their health and healing. I agree with all of them. Um, <laughs> but if you think of, of what everyone said, in one case we're saying that medical physicians need training, they need to become literate. John's saying the CAM group needs to become literate, and John's saying, uh, Wayne's saying the patient. And that's true, but at the end of the day, what you want to deliver is appropriate care. And Rand is world famous for developing an approach to determining what is appropriate and appropriate care. So no matter... Who delivers the care, no, what physician is, no matter who gets the care, you want the right care to the right person at the right time for the right thing, right? So that's a research question. So what we think here at RAND, and we don't disagree with anything they've said, we think that's right, but also at least for the CAM community, uh, you have to understand that the 30% of the population is using, as you heard at the beginning from uh, uh, Jeffrey, 
Uh, NIH spends 0.4% of its budget actually studying CAM. 30% use it, less than 10% of the budget goes to it. That's not going to change very drastically, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So until that happens, we think someone like Rand needs to step in and provide a forum by which we can help up the literacy, the research literacy of the CAM community. Because although a lot of uh, DC PhDs are around, and John's one of them, most of them are not working in, in chiropractic institutions. Virtually mm -hmm. all of them are being seduced away to universities. Mm -hmm. are good researchers, but they're not helping the institutions. So the institutions not developing the infrastructure, the capacity to do research. And as I pointed out, Integrated healthcare requires collaborative research. You can't have one partner that does it all with all the money and all the, the literacy and the other one just being used, right? So that's not going to happen. So we've looked at that and said there's a huge capacity problem here and we think RAND can actually put its resources to actually helping build that capacity. So we think under all of what they've said, there's also another need and that is a research need. Mm -hmm. I'm torn between asking you more questions or <laughs> turning it over to the audience. Do you guys have any questions for us yet? Two very quick questions. One, who's opposing this? Well, I'm on the board of Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. Uh -huh. And, uh, I mean, this is, who's opposing this, one? And two, it would behoove insurance companies to get all over this, because it's certainly a lot cheaper than it is paying Mayo bills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if interesting enough, uh, during the 30 or 5 or 40 years I've been reaching this, we've gone from having really fierce opposition to virtually none. I think it's benign neglect rather than deliberate. I don't find many medical doctors, traditionally trained ones now, except when they're very old, um, who come through that early system where they were socialized to be opposed. Most of the younger ones, at least my own physicians, are really open to this kind of thing. So I think there's been a huge change that opposition's gone, not, hasn't gone away. Don't, I don't want to exaggerate it because John will tell me there's still many places that won't let them in. But, but I don't see much evidence that opposition as much as I see benign neglect. They just don't pick it up as uh, an issue. I think we, we mentioned it a little bit about incentives. And I think there's perverse incentives in the fee-for-service. Not to say that everyone over-treats with it. If you looked at a continuum of, you know, uh, managed care, okay, for uh, basically um, a, a certain amount per head of the individual that you have, capitated uh, system, and then on the other uh, end of the spectrum, fee-for-service, those on the fee-for-service side tends to over-treat because they're going to get more revenue with more procedures, where on the other side they tend to under-treat because they have all the, uh, the money coming in per head and it's a matter of, okay, we're going to prevent them from getting. There's, there's got to be something in the middle, and that's got to be able to uh, provide the services both diagnostic and treatment for those that need it. So that's where the evidence base comes in. Uh, and then also looking at incentives to uh, reward the practitioners or team that actually has the outcome, not the inputs of doing something, but is what you're doing actually benefiting and improving the patient health outcomes. And I think that's a key as well. Mm -hmm. Did, I think you were you had, next. So just to add to that, I think it is very difficult to show outcomes uh, with prevention. 
you have to follow people for many years to show that you've prevented a heart attack. And, you know, in the cardiovascular space, for instance, we study people who already have heart disease because then it's easy to show that, you know, you're going to prevent that second heart attack with a certain drug or procedure. But to show that nutrition visits, you know, are going to prevent that first heart attack, you have to mm -hmm. follow people for decades. And that kind of research, that's the reason that there's that research hole. And then as a result, uh, when it comes to reimbursement and payment, the way our insurance system is set up, um, insurance companies, people change throughout their lifetime. You don't stick with the same insurance company. And so it is going back to that perverse incentive on the you know, side of an insurance company, why would they want to be, or there's not as much incentive to pay for you know, nutrition visits uh, for five years if you're going to switch and then another insurance company is going to reap those benefits. Mm -hmm. So, again, it, it has a lot to do with how our healthcare system's set up. Yeah, I would Segway. agree. I would say, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that was the right question. Who's opposing it? Because there were people opposing it. I think now the qu better question is who's not doing it? Yeah. And that's the big problem, the, the neglect mm. issue. The Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Hopkins, et cetera, they're always up at the top of the list of, you know, best hospitals, et cetera. And they are because they're specialty care hospitals largely. They make a lot of money on treating people late in the game with heroic measures, okay? But if you go into the communities where they live, their population is often dismal. Their health is dismal. It's getting worse in those areas. So they actually do not deliver a model that prevents, reverses, or treats chronic illness, okay? Uh, and I think in, uh, you know, as long as we don't, we, we just reward the males for doing what they're doing, they're going to continue to do what they're doing. They have a beautiful wellness center. I've been there, visited, done a whole tour of it, visited it. They have an incredible wellness center. And I asked the head of the wellness center there at the Mayo Clinic, I said, what's the biggest problem? He says, getting the physicians to refer over to me. <laughs> Okay, they just don't do it. A lot of them don't even know I'm here. Huge three-story building. And I think that's the biggest problem that we have today. I think it's great that, uh, Dr. Jonas, you brought up the self-care and that 80% is self-care. Uh, but I haven't heard from the other uh, participants what they feel about self-care. For me, I think this is the really the essential frontier for us to to go into, like I work in the School of Social Work at U, uh, USC in the Roybal Institute for Aging, so we're very much interested in in caregivers because self care leads you. Other than a homeless person, most people self care involves a family, a caregivers, and uh, and a whole system that that we are really uh, inadequately integrating with the complementary and the other. So uh, I, I really like Dr. Jonas for what you said. I'm just curious what the other uh, uh, um, participants have to say about this self-care issue. So integrative health is, you know, uh, there's a self-selection bias. Uh, patients who seek uh, and find integrative health are the ones who are willing to, you know, uh, do more for their own um, health and do more self-care. And I agree with you. Uh, so we're, we're very blessed. And I think if we were able to track outcomes over, um, you know, the time period we'd need to 
do so, we'd see really good outcomes because there is self-selection with patients who see self-care as an important component of being well. And um, I agree that self-care is beyond uh, just the self. It is this social network and belonging mm-hmm. to a group. And we know in terms of longevity studies that it's not just about uh, being isolated and working on your health that way, but being belonging to a group that also values um, health and lifestyle. Can I? Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah, I just I want to put a caveat here because um, I think everyone university agrees that self-care should be done, and we hope all these providers that are trained in integrative medicine will put that very high on the list. But let's be honest and say that one of the most universal features about the human condition is when we get ill, we seem to need help. Every single system, every culture I've ever looked at has had a provider, whether it's a witch doctor, witch, uh, a priest, or a medical doctor, whatever. There's something about our condition that when we confront our illness like that, we seem to need help. And that's a universal characteristic of all cultures. And so I would say that while I totally agree with about the self-help, on the other hand, that's not going to negate a provider-based system right. unless mm-hmm. we change the nature of humans. So I, I would say that, that that's the caveat I'd make. What you want to make sure is that those providers are able to enable uh, the people to take care of much of their self as they can, but to have a provider where they cannot. And uh, it turns out that even in the wellness model, people have as much trouble finding their way through wellness as they did through illness. Mm-hmm. So we all thought if we move them to the wellness model, they'll become self-care. That turns out empirically not to be true. Uh, if you take whether you should be on high or low cholesterol, every six months we change our attitude about butter. For yeah. the average person to get their way through that, it requires some assistance. So that's the caveat I'd make. I uh, have two questions that really are questions. They're very quick. Uh, first, are there any models in either Asia, Europe, South America, Central America, Canada <laughs> that the U.S. could follow, uh, successful models, that is? Question two, uh, currently the primary is the guy or a woman who assigns the specialties to whatever illness the patient may have. Now, we're introducing a a much larger spectrum of optional care. Mm -hmm. Who now becomes the uh, leader of the orchestra to determine uh, whether we go to physical therapy, whether we use conventional medicine? Who assumes that role and how is it performed? Two questions <laughs> Inter- interspersed there. Um, first of all, uh, models of care elsewhere? Uh, so there are a lot of models of yeah. care elsewhere that work better than what we have, okay? <laughs> most, most of the other rich countries in the world, and this came out at a National Academy of Medicine report where they looked over the last 30 years of health outcomes and costs at the OCDE countries, the rich countries, uh, and they found that compared to the other 12 that they were comparing for, we were getting worse and worse, and nine out of the 12 outcome measures in our costs were going through. And that's because the others had better care. They had better models. So we could look at those countries. Almost all of them are based on primary care. They're based mm-hmm. on a primary care that is embedded in the community that coordinates the, the care for the patient and provides the support so that the community care team actually is involved in delivering primary care out in the community. 
Okay, uh, We've taken a bit of that in the high-cost patients, the advanced care, the 5% that cost 50%, and we've brought care coordinators in just for that part. We need care coordinators for the other 95%, whether you call them health coaches or health partners or this type of thing, the type of practitioner that Ian is just talking about. And other countries have done this. Now, you don't have to look other, at other countries. It's happening here in this country. There are some... Uh, capitated type systems or systems mm -hmm. that actually uh, are not in a, a fee-for-service or at least are moving out in creative ways, even with their fee-for-service models, right. uh, to be able to restructure the care so that it is truly a population health-based primary care. And we call that going from volume to value in the policy sectors, mm -hmm. okay? And there's lots of examples of that. I'll point to one that I think is one of the best in terms of the large, uh, and that is the whole health system within the VA. The VA is flipping the care model on its head mm -hmm. to actually deliver group care, health coaching, yeah. complementary and integrative mm -hmm. health care in those areas, and embedding it within primary care, and then coordinating that with the specialty teams in a way that makes sure that they appropriately use the specialty components and not overuse it. Mm -hmm. Great. And Dr. Scringe. Well, I was going to talk about the VA, but I won't now. Um, <laughs> but um, talk about coordinated care. One of the things that we're trying uh, to do is we have uh, a three-part model in, in a primary care setting. And we're working on a neuromusculoskeletal specialist, because if you look at, you know, 600 billions being spent just on back and other neuromusculoskeletal pain, and then your, pri your traditional primary care in a more holistic uh, integrated way uh, with Dartmouth uh, University. And we have a study going on right now uh, where those two are working together. So when a patient comes in, any neuromusculoskeletal, when you're talking about looking at maybe like physical therapy, whatever, goes right to that practitioner first, and anything else goes to the primary care. The other piece that we haven't put in yet, and that's the behavioral mental health, and that's a key component. So we, we think that this primary care team in the community should be your, you know, uh, physical therapist, chiropractor for the neuromusculoskeletal side, your primary care practitioner, and your mental and behavioral health specialist mm -hmm. with a care coordinator, okay, to help, you know, manage those things. So that, that's a model that we're working on, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, go ahead and tell you the results as, uh, as it moves on. And, and so, you know, the primary care physician has traditionally been the gatekeeper, um, mm -hmm. and that really is being flipped on its head uh, with health coaching. Um, at our institution, we're educating nurses so that they can, they don't need to wait for a physician order to invoke acupuncture in mm -hmm. um, a patient. So it is uh, having everyone practice to the top of their license, bringing in uh, care coordinators, and, you know, there's still a very vigorous discussion on who's qualified to be a health coach. You know, can you be a high school graduate? And I've seen models in the nation where someone who's just graduated from high school is a health coach, and there's some issues with, you know, figuring out uh, just having enough life lessons to know how to, you know, help someone who has chronic heart failure. But um, I think it's a really interesting time, and I think we're going to be making some really wonderful forward movement by removing uh, primary care physicians as gatekeepers yes. to some of this. And just very quickly, one of the things that screws up that kind of question in the debate <laughs> is the difference between a primary contact 
health yes. provider versus a primary care yes. provider. Yes. And because often they look at the alternatives and because they don't look like a primary care MD, they're sure that shouldn't be primary contact. If you look at the malpractice insurance for many of the alternatives, they're much, much lower, which means they don't screw up very often. So as a primary contact, many of them are perfectly capable of knowing what's contraindicated and they can diagnose. They're well trained to diagnose chiropractors are. So you can have a much wider range of primary contact the problem with the primary care model that we've had in medicine is it's the referral model, and you want yeah. to get out of that. So just to say that yeah. when you're talking about that, you've got to make a distinction about who you would tolerate as a primary contact health professional versus who actually is a primary care, and, mm -hmm. and the two are not quite the same. I was just going to say, if you'd like to see examples of how this works currently in this country, Arnie Milstein at Stanford was funded by the Peterson Foundation to look at the top 5% of primary care practices that were meeting the triple aim. Triple aim is lower cost, better outcomes, improved quality. Okay? Mm -hmm. and, so, and they had a, a standard set of characteristics of care coordination, patient-centeredness, and specialty care, and evidence-based practice decision-making. Okay? Yeah. Uh, and it worked. Yeah. Uh, and so that would be an example of looking at, uh, at what's around in this country. Okay. Um, my question is twofold, one for education and one for the practice of uh, chronic disease management. So the students I teach at USC, I'm one of the faculty there in integrative medicine. And so we have a track for students as well, and they get... Uh, you know, ed adequate evidence-based education. And the residents are very interested, and we are also now teaching undergraduate students because there's a need, and graduate students as well in global health. The question that I have is once they see that and they get very excited, they don't see the role modeling in the community where they're practicing because students are very interested in underserved, indigent kind of care practice when they first start with residency. And unfortunately, these medical and all don't cover them, so we don't have very limited places to refer our patients. And so I was wondering if you've uh, experienced in your research practices underserved models that have been sustainable, especially for chronic disease management, which is mostly lifestyle medicine with diabetes mm -hmm. and, you know, things like that. And also, um, if there's like interprofessional training, like I used to run a student-run clinic mm -hmm. with physicians, PA students, occupational therapy, and pharmacy students. And when they worked as first, second, and third year, they actually collaborated during that training and had much respect for scope of practice. And I was wondering if there's anything in your research or in your practice that you've discovered with interprofessional health, like let's say with medical students, naturopaths, chiropracts. We had student interest group that had conferences together, but I'm not sure about the development and how to take it to the next step. So based on your expertise or your research, if you've come across any, and how we could su successfully champion that cause at the med school level and residents and beyond. Okay, someone actually wants to know how to do it here. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's great. So in terms of uh, integrative medicine in underserved communities, there's actually an organization called I Am For Us. And uh, the Venice, here locally, the Venice Family um, Health Clinic um, has a very active and robust um, integrative medicine service. Um, Dr. Dave Kilgore, who's in the audience from UCI, runs um, you know our FQHC uh, centers and has created uh, group visits, and they that's a really wonderful model. We can deliver acupuncture uh, in a group visit using ear acupuncture to 20 patients in an hour. Um, 
we can do nutrition visits. And so the group visit model has, it's not just about uh, efficiency, but there's also efficacy because it goes back to that uh, idea of having a social network or a social group that you know patients interact with and there's greater compliance. So there's some great research showing that group visits beyond being a great financial model have improved outcomes because of that um, social relationship as well. Um, as far as you know, um, training students, um, we've we are um, have a program called Live Healthy OC where we're collaborating with the community clinics uh, in Orange County and uh, are trying to uh, introduce our trainees into the community healthcare system. Uh, and we've used our naturopathic uh, residents. So at UCI, we have the only naturopathic residency program in an allopathic medical school. And so our naturopathic residents are providing free clinics in the community clinic system, and that's been wildly popular um, because then that also allows different interprofessional training on the ground, um, and there's just a great exchange of ideas and the patient in the end benefits. Yeah, great. Well, you asked a question about uh, sustainability, and uh, the, I think the, the issue is you got to pay for it, right? Yeah. Uh, and you, the only way you can pay for it is if you look at the entire costs, okay? If you're only paying for that part of it, but, you know, people are uh, taking profits away from another and you don't control the whole system. So the, the movement towards value involves incremental moves towards bundled care where they're going to say we're going to pay you a, you know, per condition <clears throat> care. We need to, exp to expand that so that it is bundled care for primary care or for mm -hmm. chronic care management and a per patient per month that's of sufficient amount that allows you to truly take care of the whole person and keep them out of the more expensive care and then recapture some of those costs to help pay for you know those increased costs. I think those kinds of models are out there. They actually work in the, uh, you know, around the country, and I think we need to generalize that and create policies uh, that actually uh, then incentivize and cover those kinds of uh, bundled uh, value-based care. And, and and I also think that there's some evidence in corp, uh, corporations. So when you're looking at um, the big corporations like Facebook and you know um, uh, Apple and Google, um, they are putting these integrated clinics for their employees, and they're self-insured, so that they're able to you know have a little bit more control on the type of care. But that's also for the, the workforce age group. Right, so it's not looking at the pediatrics all the way, you know, to the to the uh, older adult either. Um, but they are being very successful, and I think there's some evidence that maybe what happens in the corporation because they're not just worried about what the bottom line is, they're all, which they are, but they are also interested in a satisfied, healthy workforce because that helps productivity. And uh, I think there's some models there that we can, you know, use into the uh, public sector. Hi, and thank you for putting this all together. I'm Toby Fischel, and I co-founded the Vanderbilt Institute for Integrative Health years ago, so I've been involved in this for a long time, and now I'm at USC, and I'm the Director of Residency Wellness, and we have a 1,000 residents. And I bring that up because I think there are two huge holes in integrative medicine that we need to address, and I'm, my question is if Rand will, will look at these two issues. One is, 
environmental determinants of health. So one is, you know, within that, that is climate change, pollution, violence. We know what that does to our health. And while I agree that self-care is 80% of the determinants, sometimes we don't take care of ourselves because we're just trying to find clean water and a safe place to put our head down at night. And so that's a question about environmental health. And then the second one is about physician wellness, depression, burnout, right? And suicide rate in physicians is at an all-time high. That's what I do every day now with residents. And it's very scary, and it's because they're not spending time with patients and not talking about meaning <laughs> anymore. And uh, when they do do something in integrative medicine, they actually feel a whole lot better about what they're doing. So environmental determinants and physician health, if you can address that. Very quickly about physician health. Uh, I was at the University of Toronto in the medical school where they did the groundbreaking studies on suicide rates, divorce rates amongst residents. And uh, uh, one of the things we did was cut the number of hours immediately so they're not working 80 hours a week and so on. So there is some really good work that's been done. It's a really big issue. The best solution I've ever seen is the Texas Osteopathic College who started a wellness program and they said to the students, the first patient you're going to have the audacity to take care of is yourself. So in the mm -hmm. very first year, every student in that osteopathic college got a full health risk assessment and if their weight was a risk or their stress was a risk or the nutrition one of the faculty members had to mentor them, and then the faculty members had to sign a health contract to do this. So it's the only institution that said the most negative effect on the health of the students is our program. And by the time they get out of here, they're no longer healthy. The first thing we've got to do is take care of that. So if you look it up, I've, I haven't read it for several years, but I always thought it was the most exciting uh, institution I've ever seen that really seriously took that problem. And there's a similar program at uh, Stanford where they've devoted like five FTEs to physician wellness. Um, our dean um, at the School of Medicine who's here um, has, you know, given us funding to bring this under the uh, integrative health and create physician wellness and uh, really then branch out to health uh, provider wellness. Can I just add, add one thing to that? I think those are great examples. Uh, if you look at physician burnout, and I, mm -hmm. I, I teach, you know, if you look at physician burnout, the administrative components are a huge mm -hmm. issue. Uh, and uh, I teach in a residency, and um, uh, you see it all, you see, you know, burnout all the time in those areas. And I think it does also get back, in addition to the things it's mentioned, back to are you connecting in a meaningful way to the patient? And so I teach my residents how to do something called the hope note mm -hmm. after they do the soap note, which mm -hmm. is a healing-oriented practices. And we hand a personalized health plan inventory to the patient before they go into the visit so they know that what we're going to be talking about. And the very first question is what matters to you in your life, Okay. Amazing stories come out of that. And then there's a set of questions that the physician and the resident deliver that matches that. And that gets at these underlying social environmental mm -hmm. and behavioral determinants of health. And then if you're not there to support it, on the other hand, on the other end, the patient knows immediately and they won't come back. <laughs> yeah. um, Judy Fishman, I have two questions. I hadn't heard anything about um, virtual reality for pain relief. That was one area. And the other area in early childhood, one of the things that makes the biggest difference in the trajectory of a child's life, especially kids that are underserved, is home visitation. Mm -hmm. And our Board of Supervisors mm -hmm. has now mandated that home visitation be integrated into all various aspects of um, visiting kids in the hospital, changing what parents do, 
um, health and prevention, and I haven't really heard anybody piggybacking on that and increasing that <coughs> mandate and working with uh, parents from the very beginning. Anyone? Um, on the virtual reality piece, there 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 are some small studies showing, um, you know, using basically guided imagery, and especially in the chronic pain, uh, the concept of neuroplasticity and visualizing uh, pain and then visualizing pain areas in your brain getting smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. There's some great clinics, uh, one up in Sausalito, that use that very effectively with chronic pain. And so virtual reality is just the next iteration of that. Mm -hmm. So I'll just say a little bit about the childhood component. If we really wanted to make America well again, mm -hmm. <laughs> we would move way upstream and make sure that every child between the ages of pre-birth to five had an environmental care that actually took care of them. So mm -hmm. that at the end of that, they had enough food, they were not, they didn't experience adverse ex, ex, uh, childhood experiences and traumas, which, which you know, impacts them for life. Um, and they could read, they had exposed to thousands of words, uh, and they learned how to emotionally regulate. Mm -hmm. Okay, and there's there's lots of studies, randomized control trials. Okay, that have shown that if you do that, fifteen twenty years later, they are saving uh, healthcare dollars, uh, and they're uh, em employed, uh, and they're going to school, uh, and they're contrib contributing back to the wealth of the nation. And, and going back to you know with childhood um, health. Going into the schools, um, uh, there was a school district that decided to replace detention with mindfulness time. And so yeah, instead of kids uh, having after-school detention, they did a mindfulness class, and uh, those behavior issues plummeted. Yeah. So, you know, That's figuring out how idea. to get nutrition, education, mindfulness uh, into the classroom. We did right. the same thing with faculty. We had... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Quick question. Um, this summer, I got a little confused. I met um, an orthopedic surgeon from um, Berlin who said that um, he practices now um, what he calls the osteopathic mm -hmm. method, and it's much safer than the American chiropractic uh, method. Um, I was wondering what the difference would be between <laughs> the two. And the other question would be, um, could these two methods damage um, internal organs or leading to hernia or any other side effects? Thank you. Yeah. Sounds like research question. <laughs> well, I guess that was directed at me. <laughs> um, get 10 manual therapists in the room, and they'll tell you 11 <laughs> different stories of how they're better. Um, it's not chiropractic that you should go to. It's me as the chiropractor or not. You know, so I, I don't know if I can, I can answer that to tell you... Um, what method that they're, you know, involved in, uh, whether it's a lower force type of technique, a soft tissue, whether it's a, you know, a joint manipulation, which is something that's a part of all our manual therapists. And I think the key is when you really look at an evidence-based chiropractor, an evidence-based physical therapist, an evidence-based um, osteopath, I think it starts to blend and they all start looking the same. Okay, so I, 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 there's just so many different <laughs> methods out there to just coin it as chiropractic and or osteopathic. It's going to be tough for me to, to answer. And that's not a cop-out. That's just, you and, know, I can't. I and can't we have a project studying yeah. both of them at the moment. If you'd like to ask me, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah.
Well, thank you. I mean, thank all of you for making this such an interesting and provocative evening. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.